In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ajjal farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome once again to our life series where we are trying to study our scriptures and our original Islamic sources to see what we can learn from them to apply to our daily lives in a practical manner. As you will remember, we began a first theme of study, a first theme for our discussions centered around the place, the role of reason in our religion, the importance of reason, the importance of rationality, the importance of knowledge, ilm, and aql, and ma'rifah, as we said. So very quickly, because today we are starting a new heading in the series, a very quick recap, I don't want to spend too much time on it, a very quick recap, and then inshallah we continue. So we began this theme by explaining the importance and the necessity of knowledge and reason in our religion. We said that in our religion, knowledge is not only important, it is necessary. Reason is not only important, it is necessary. There is something lacking, something seriously lacking in our faith if we do not include the importance of knowledge and rationality in our understanding, in our system of beliefs. From there, we also looked at what's the alternative. Because sometimes we may think that it's okay for us to stay neutral. I'm not doing anything bad, and I don't need to do anything too good. So long as I stay neutral, things are okay. I'm doing okay. And so when we looked at what our religion says about the opposite of these themes, what our religion says about knowledge, it says that the only alternative is either that you are of those who are constantly learning and giving importance to aql, or you fall in the category of jahl. We said jahl does not translate very easily, it's, so we translated it with two terms. In English, on one side, it is ignorance or the lack of knowledge, and on the other side, practically, it is foolishness. So when our religion says jahl, jahl means both things. In Arabic, jahl includes the foolish conduct and practical behavior that someone would say this is foolishness. This is jahl and jahl. And it includes the lack of knowing, the lack of knowledge. That's also jahl. We can call it ignorance. When we looked at what our religion says about jahl, how dangerous it is, how despicable, how it is something that is undesirable in our religion, we saw that this is not an alternative. The only option we have as a good believer, as a good Muslim, your only option is to become, therefore, someone who is constantly striving to learn more, to acquire more knowledge, and to use your aql better and in a deeper and a more serious way as time goes by. This is the only option. Our religion did not leave anything up for chance or for uh, another alternative to present itself so that you may say, you know, I may become a knowledgeable person 
or a jahil or something in between. I stay neutral. The neutral does not exist. That's, that was the conclusion from that part. Therefore, our only option in our religion is to become someone who gives the right importance to knowledge, the right importance to reason, and start to look at what does that mean concretely. So, before jumping into the next topics that logically we should be thinking about, we said that we need to cover the conditions that make knowledge Islamic and that make aql Islamic. Once we understand this, this is a topic that is usually addressed much later in these types of series. In fact, it's not even addressed in most series that have to do with knowledge. They, they jump right into the more practical dimensions and we will get to them. And we went through a part of it and there's more to come. Right away we start talking about what are the good ingredients of a learner, the, the good manners of the learner, what are the rights of the learner, the rights of the teacher, the merits of the teacher, and so on and so forth. And then we can talk about the types of knowledge and how do we prioritize them. All of that, inshallah, we started talking about some of it and we're leaving the rest till the next headings. But we said that there is two conditions. If we understand them, even though they are classically not presented here, once we understand them, everything else falls into place. Those two conditions are that for knowledge to be Islamic, it requires a purity of intention. It requires a sincere intent. If your intention from acquiring the knowledge is an intention that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants, then this knowledge seeking is going to be Islamic. That's the first condition. Regardless of the type of knowledge you're acquiring. Yes, of course it can be Islamic knowledge. It can be theology, it can be tafsir, aqaid, seerah, akhlaq. Of course those are commendable and noble sciences. But you may also learn math or medicine or whatever else. You may study economics, you may study sociology. And those fields are also going to be considered an Islamic activity because of your intention, not because of the type of information you're acquiring. What is your intent from acquiring the information? That's one. The first condition in knowledge and in knowledge seeking for knowledge to be Islamic, sincerity or purity of intent. Your intention has to be good. Even if you were to study what we usually call Islamic sciences, Islamic disciplines, if the intent is missing, then it's not considered Islamic anymore. You may study fiqh, you may study aqaid, beliefs, theology, seerah, the biographies of the ma'sumin, but if your intent is not there, then this is useless. This is not considered real knowledge. To you and I in the outside world, we call that knowledge. But to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, none of the criteria, the merits, the ranks, the rewards of knowledge are going to apply to this type of knowledge. This is not real knowledge. And we said there's a second condition. So the first condition is your intention has to be a good one. And the highest level of that intention is what we called ikhlas. Okay, you may have a little bit of it, you may have a lot of it, but you have to secure ikhlas in order to have Islamic knowledge. That's the first condition. The second condition is that knowledge must lead to action. In Islam, real knowledge is knowledge that leads to action. 
we explain this topic by calling it transformational knowledge. When you learn something in our religion, depending on, of course, now we're saying that you secured the right intent, that knowledge, that information that you acquired has to have some sort of effect on you. That effect on you will eventually show in your conduct, in your behavior. Therefore, there's a transformation constantly taking place. As you learn, if your intent is good, as you're learning, this knowledge that you're learning is changing you from the inside, and this is showing on the outside, in the manner in which you conduct yourself. So a very simple example would be someone who does not know that prayer is obligatory or how to pray. You learn that prayer is obligatory in our religion. You must perform your prayers. That knowledge is now acquired. You acquired the information. Are you going to do something about it or not? There's still a, a piece missing. If you act on the knowledge that you acquired, now this knowledge has become Islamic. You're meeting the second condition. The knowledge transformed you and it's showing in your conduct. It's showing in your actions. These are the two conditions that we said, once they are well understood and put in practice in the right way from the beginning, then your entire journey of seeking knowledge, of acquiring knowledge becomes Islamic. The type of knowledge you're acquiring becomes secondary. And as we said, we will talk about it. And we will say what our religion has said about the different types, the different disciplines, areas of knowledge that we should definitely be working on. We will get to those. These are the more practical considerations. But those two conditions have to be secured first. Once they are secured, everything else becomes secondary. It becomes a detail. It derives out of this. Secure the right intent, one, and make sure that this is part of something transformational that turns into action. The manner in which you conduct yourself, you carry yourself in the world, has to change as you acquire more and more knowledge in this world. Otherwise, this knowledge is not Islamic in the Islamic sense. Once we understood this, we said, okay, so now what? Therefore, because knowledge needs to lead to action, therefore, I have to understand what's my action. Where do I start? And the first action, therefore, must become that I become a learner. I have to position myself as someone who is seeking this knowledge that we've been talking about. And so, this now became the next heading to look at what it means to be a learner in our religion. For, so over the past, I don't know how many lectures, maybe between somewhere around 15 lectures, we've been talking about the learner in Islam. And we said this is part of a, a larger topic. So we finished the learner just so that you're properly situated, what we've covered and where we're going. Inshallah, we finished the learner. Today, we're starting the second part of this triad, of this theory that we're presenting made up of three parts. The first one is the learner. The second one is the teacher. The third one is the community. In our religion, and we saw a lot of hints of this already, 
that we need to strive not only as individuals to move towards knowledge-seeking and to become learners, and therefore, later, we become teachers. And this is what we will start today. We have to work at a collective level. It's not enough that I work individually. I have to work with others so that the community starts to move towards a community that gives importance to knowledge. Knowledge cannot be something that is random, that is left to chance. As a community, I have to understand this is something important in our community. We need to discuss it. We need to have programs, plans, thoughts about it. We don't just leave it happen in a random way. And this can apply community at the very small level in my own household, in my own family, with my friends, with people that I hang out with. And this community could also be understood as all the followers of Ahl al-Bayt around the world, all the Muslims around the world. That's also community. Where is the place of knowledge in that community? What are we doing about knowledge, given everything we've said until now? So this is what, where we're heading. So as we said, the first part, inshallah, we understood it. When we talked about the learner, first we explained the importance of becoming a learner, and then we reiterated saying, no, the necessity of becoming a learner. That's first. Secondly, we explained what we consider, what we called the ingredients of the learner in Islam. And we went through many of them. And then at the end of that, we also talked about the manners of the learner in Islam. That was kind of where we were, wrapping the topic. And then the last heading, which we said we should have put it in the beginning logically, but we kept it until the end. The merit of the learner. The rank of the learner in our religion. How does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala view a learner? How does our religion view someone seeking knowledge? And we said that we're ending with this so that this becomes a call to action. If someone really understands, if someone really appreciates what we're saying about the merits of the learner in our religion, then there's no way that you will not want to become that learner. So that these things that, these things that we said about the merits of the learner in religion does not apply to you. Why would you want to miss out on this? Okay, so this is where we ended. So inshallah today we begin this new heading of the teacher. The importance of this topic or the logical place of this topic. The first point is that if you have understood everything we've said about the learner until now, then there's also something that we haven't emphasized but we've mentioned a few times, which is that learning, therefore, or knowledge, therefore, always comes with a responsibility with a number of responsibilities one of the most important and inshallah this is going to be much clearer a little bit later but one of the most important responsibilities of knowledge is that you share it once you acquire the knowledge you will be responsible for sharing that knowledge first you have to secure it in yourself you have to make sure that you do understand you have enough of it, and you understand the responsibility that goes to that level of knowledge. Every level of knowledge is going to carry its own responsibility. The level of knowledge that I have now, 
What's my responsibility? What's the duty associated with this level of knowledge? I have to ask myself. And the answer to you is going to be different for the answer that I'm going to come up with for myself. This is going to be different. Each one of us has their own circumstances, their own realities, their own level of knowledge. And they will see where they are most needed based on the level of knowledge that they have. And associated with this topic, and inshallah this point has become clear, we've mentioned it a few times. Knowledge is not one of those things that are either you have it or you don't. Knowledge is something that you're constantly growing, that you're constantly acquiring. It's a continuum. A continuum means that it's not something like, let's say this light. You might go into a room and when you click on the light, it comes on. You press the button again, it goes off. There's only two states. It's a binary thing. There is light, there is no light. There's electricity, there's no electricity. There's a signal, there's no signal. And sometimes you go into a room and you see that there's a dimmer. And you see that it's very difficult or impossible, depending on what we're talking about, to really define very clearly the difference between one amount of light and another amount of light. You just know that there's a progression here. There's a continuum. It's not a situation where it's binary. Knowledge is like this. In philosophy, they say there's a difference between mutawatiq and mushakkik. There are things that have very clear ranks. And there are things that are a continuum, a gradation, a progression, an evolution. And it's very difficult to put stages, very defined stages to it. The reason we're saying this is that if we understand this correctly, if we understand knowledge being of this type of reality, that is a continuum, it means at any point in time, you should be able to say, I have knowledge. Sure, there might be someone who has more knowledge than you. Sure, there might be someone who has less knowledge than you. But you have to understand that knowledge is a continuum, which means that there is no beginning or end to it. You're constantly somewhere on that journey, which means that there's also always an amount of duty related to the knowledge you have an amount of responsibility to the knowledge you have. You just have to be able to accurately say, and this is the, the responsibility that goes with this amount of knowledge. Okay, so that's the first point. Practically speaking, as we are acquiring knowledge, it should therefore mean that at some point, the fact that we have knowledge should mean that at some point, we become of those who share that knowledge. We are somewhere on the journey to becoming the teacher. Therefore, we need to understand where we're headed. That's why we're talking about the teacher. That's one. Secondly, we want to make sure that, and this is going to be a heading that we're going to talk about, we want to make sure that we're choosing the right teacher. We've been talking about being the learner. Where are you learning from? Where, what is the source of information who are you allowing to play with your mind this way? This is a very important topic in our religion. That you have to be very selective who you allow to manipulate or influence your mind. Do you wholeheartedly and entirely and absolutely give in to someone and let them say whatever they want and 
dictate whatever they want and you take it entirely? Are you aware of how much you're being influenced? Or is this happening and you're not even aware of it? And do you accept everything or are you selective? Do you have the criteria? Do you, are you equipped with the tools, the critical tools to be able to say, I take this part, I reject that one. Right? Inshallah, we started talking about some of this and there's a lot more coming in this direction. But generally speaking, this is the second reason why we're talking about it. One, the learner will become, inshallah, eventually the teacher. Whether they will actually become the teacher or not, it's up to them. But the logical sequence of the learner is that they become eventually the teacher. And there is a religious responsibility to become the teacher. And that's how you get the community of knowledge at the end. The second practical point is that you want to be able to choose the right teacher. You want to understand who is this teacher? What does our religion say about them? How do you choose them? What are their criteria? What are their merits? What are their rights? What are their responsibilities? And thirdly, and this is what we've been talking about, regardless of what you want to do, and so those should be the main reasons, but we also want to generally understand what does our religion say about all of this? What's the system that is being proposed by Islam about all of this community of knowledge that includes the learners and the teachers? How does all of this fit together? So this is more theoretical. Okay, so with all of this said, Today, inshallah, we begin the discussion around the teacher. A first point. You will notice, starting today, that, and this will continue for the entirety of the discussion on the teacher, we're focused on the teacher. But the majority of the narrations, the scriptures, the verses of the Qur'an that we will look at, Usually, the term that is used is not going to be the term of the teacher. Usually, the term that is used is the term of the scholar, the alim, the person carrying the knowledge. So, they are not designated by that specific function. So, clearly, the person who is teaching has knowledge to be able to teach. But the moment that you carry that knowledge, we said there is a whole lot of responsibilities associated with the knowledge that you have. One of these, and one of the main ones, is that you share that knowledge. While you're doing this, you are a teacher. But you may be something else with that knowledge. You are still carrying the knowledge. You are a scholar. But one of your other responsibilities is, for instance, that let's say you have to play a social or political role of leadership. Well, in that case, yes, you are the scholar, but you are not necessarily performing that duty of teaching. Right? But generally speaking, if we go to the hadith, if we go to the narrations, if we go to the verses of the Qur'an, it will be very difficult for us to disentangle, to identify only a hadith that have to do with the teacher. And so many of the hadith that we will talk about, as you will mention, as you will see, are going to be mentioning, are going to be using the term of the scholar. Okay? This discussion is not about the scholar in Islam in general. This would require another series, a deeper series. 
We are really trying to focus more on the role of the teacher, but we have to talk a lot about the scholar because it has to do with knowledge, knowledge seeking, knowledge sharing, and the roles, the responsibilities associated with someone who now carries that knowledge. Okay, so we say this point so that we don't keep repeating it later. You will notice that we will talk a lot about the scholar in general. That will include the role of the teacher because most of the narrations that we will look at, they're not talking about the teacher. The mention is not al-mu'allim, for instance. The mention is going to be the alim, the person who carries the knowledge. So that's the first point. The second point is maybe just to give a very high-level map of therefore the headings that we want to cover under this new theme or sub-theme of the teacher. So inshallah, starting today, this is what we will try to cover. Who is the true teacher? Who is the scholar? And this is not usually a topic that is addressed in these types of series, but I want to make a point to present it and to present it now at the beginning. We could also leave it at the very end, but I prefer to say it now because I think it's going to add a lot of clarity and explain a lot of things once it's well understood. So who is the real teacher? Who is the true scholar in everything that we will look at? We're going to look at a large number of ahadith as we always do. And we want to give the real explanation of every time we see this term of scholar come up. We want to have clarity on what that really means so that we don't have to continuously come back. And we'll see that it's going to clarify a lot of things. Some of the next headings are going to include, so for each one of these, we're going to stop and look at all the ahadith and say what Islam says about this, choosing the right teacher. And the importance of choosing the right teacher. These are two different things. How do I choose this teacher? So I need some sort of criteria that's on one side, and on the other side, that this is extremely important. This is not something to be taken lightly. I have to give enough importance to this topic of choosing the right person to consider as my teacher. The merits of the teacher, the merits of the scholar, kind of similar to the discussion we had about the learner. We wanted to understand how does Islam view the learner? What is the place of learning and the learner in Islam? What are the divine rewards to say it spiritually or in a religious language? What are the rewards to becoming a learner? Well, we want to look at it now from the teacher's side. What are the rewards of being a teacher? What does Islam say about the rank, the merit, the value of teaching and of the teacher? The next heading is going to be, after that, the duties, the prohibitions, or in short, the responsibilities of carrying knowledge. There's the responsibilities of being a scholar, the responsibilities of being a teacher. And in one of these, we will also talk about the responsibilities towards the students of that teacher specifically, but it will go way beyond that. And I think that's an, a very important topic too. One of the main ones we're covering. We will talk about the rights of the teacher. They are there are a few narrations that explicitly mention a number of rights. So we'll talk about that. It's a little bit more practical. And I'd like to end this whole discussion with about the teacher with what we can call a critical discussion. 
around the notion of authority in today's world. The moment that you say someone is a teacher, you are accepting, if you say this is my teacher, it means that you have accepted a certain level of authority that they have. Even if it's one dimension of your life, for instance, this is my math teacher. In that dimension of your life, your knowledge related to math, you are giving up the authority of your math knowledge to this person. The discussion around the scholar and around the teacher definitely has a direct link with the notion, with the concept of authority in this world. So I think there's a discussion, a very interesting discussion that we can have here once we finish this whole number of headings or subheadings as we said about the teacher to end it with a discussion around authority. And authority can mean non-religious authority and it could also mean religious authority. To see maybe some things that our religion has said about this notion of knowledge and how it relates to authority. And as I said, this inshallah is just to open a little window, a door in your mind and to have a little bit of a critical thinking around this notion of authority in today's world. Because in today's world specifically, there is a, an ongoing discussion about this topic. The topic of authority in science, for instance, in policy and in law, for instance. This is happening in society. So we want to link to that and understand it and then see how does this apply to the religious discussion. Inshallah, we'll make all of that clearer when we get there. So this now is, we've done our recap. We know what we've covered until now. We understand where we're heading. So now we begin the discussion about the teacher. And we said the first question we want to answer is, who is this teacher? Who is the scholar in our religion? The truth is that, first of all, this is usually not a discussion that is presented here. If it is presented at all, it's presented in other types of series. That's one. And two, the topic is a little delicate. So it does require a little bit of concentration on your part to understand the nuances, to understand the subtle arguments we're making here. In short, we want to have clarity. We want to give a very short answer at the end of this discussion to who is this scholar that we're going to be encountering in each one of the next lectures that we're going to have when we talk about the teacher, when we talk about the scholar. Who is this scholar? So today we want to define, we want to end this discussion, inshallah, today. When we leave today, inshallah, we have clarity on who is this teacher or a scholar. Okay? We're going to start with a sermon from Imam Ali alayhi salam, from Nahj al-Balagha. This is a sermon that is usually presented, it's a very well-known sermon, and we are not presenting this sermon to explain this sermon in detail. This sermon would require a very different type of presentation and explanation. A lot has been written about it, and there's a lot that can be said as commentary and as explanation to this sermon. The reason we're presenting it is to understand the answer to this question. Who is the teacher and who is the scholar that we're going to be talking about? Okay, so... For those who already know this sermon, I'm asking you to shift 
the way you understand it, to focus on things that are usually not always focused on in the sermon. And for those of you who have not heard about it, you're going to hear about the sermon for the first time. It is usually referred to as the sermon of those who are pious, al-muttaqeen, or sifat al-muttaqeen. Okay, and there is more than one sermon in Nahj al-Balagha that is referred to in this way. This is one of them. The one we're referring to is number 87 in Nahj al-Balagha. This is not the full sermon. If you go back to the books of history and the books of commentary on the sermon, they tell us that Sharif al-Radi, when he put Nahj al-Balagha together, he did not take the entirety of the sermon of Imam Ali salam here. He only chose important parts, but there are long parts that are missing from the middle of this sermon. In any case, that's for those who are interested in these types of contextual and, and more technical details. Okay, so Imam Ali salam, as we always do, we read in Arabic, we translate in English. So the sermon is described in Nahj al-Balagha, وَهِيَ فِي بَيَانِ صِفَاتِ الْمُتَّقِينَ وَصِفَاتِ الْفُسَّاقِ وَالتَّنْبِيهِ إِلَى مَكَانَ الْعِتْرَةِ الطَّيِّبَةِ وَالظَّنِّ الْخَاطِئِ لِبَعْضِ النَّاسِ so this is how Sharif al-Radi presents this sermon. That this is a sermon explaining the characteristics of those who have piety. Okay? God-fearing. The char- and the characteristics of those who are fasiq. We can talk about fasiq in a second. And it brings attention to the ranks and importance of the family of the Holy Prophet And he says, and some false opinions that some people have. We're not going to talk about that. There's a couple of lines at the very end that talk about how some people think that Bani Umayyah are never going to lose their grip on power and they will be here forever. And obviously, if the Imam is saying it this way, it means that this is how people were talking in his time. Okay, so the Imam addresses this. This part we're not talking about today. So this notion of fasiq, what's a fasiq? So by opposition to muttaqi. So muttaqi is someone who is God-fearing. Therefore, the fasiq is someone who lacks fear of God. And usually, in the technical way that it's used in our religion, it means it shows. In other words, someone who dares to perform, to commit a sin openly. Okay, so they have so little fear of God that they find it okay not only to commit a sin, but they will commit a sin openly, publicly. People will see them committing the sin. That person has a technical term called fasiq. This is how it is used in fiqh, for instance. If you go back to the Holy Qur'an, the term seems to be used more generally than that. This is more the technical use of it. Okay, so in general, Imam Ali is saying, I'm going to give you some of the characteristics of those who fear God. This is the description of Sharif al-Radi, by the way, the compiler of Nahj al-Balagha. I will give you the characteristics of those who fear God and those who do not, in other words. Okay, and then he says, and he's going to bring attention to the role of the family members of the Holy Prophet. If you will follow as we go through this, yes, there is definitely a listing of the characteristics of those who fear God here. But if you follow the entire structure and the entire argument of the sermon, you will see that there is more going on than this. This description of those who fear God and have piety and those who don't. What I'm arguing here is that Imam Ali السلام, is talking about those who, now that they carry knowledge, they have become teachers. And by opposition, there are those who are good teachers, 
those who should be teachers and those who should not be, even though they are presenting themselves as teachers. Okay, why are we talking about this? The question is, who is the true teacher? What is the final answer of Imam Ali alayhi salam in this, in this sermon? He gives us general characteristics. We're going to go through them. I'm giving you the, the layout so that it's clear and then we go through it. And we'll repeat it at the end again. He will give us the general characteristics so that you and I, when we look at different teachers, at different people, we say, or we compare it to ourselves, we say, how much of what the Imam is describing do we find in ourselves or do we find in others? That's great. But then the Imam suddenly starts talking about the family members of the Holy Prophet the Itra, the Ahlul Bayt which tells us what? Which tells us that Imam Ali is saying that the true teacher, the true scholar is none other than the infallible. When we see this notion of alim in our scriptures, in our ahadith, your first image, the first mental image that comes to your mind should not be to go to so-and-so scholar that you know. It should go to an infallible that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has presented to you as your guide in this world. That's the real alim. What about all the other ulama? What about all these other people that we refer to as a scholar? To the extent that they are what they are saying and what they are teaching and what they are writing and what they are lecturing matches what Ahlul Bayt are saying, they are a scholar. They, they are not an independent entity. To the extent that they bring you back to Ahlul Bayt, to the extent that what they are saying matches what Ahlul Bayt are saying, then this person is a scholar. Otherwise, the rest of the knowledge has nothing to do with what Ahlul Bayt say. That could be put aside. If what they are saying is contradictory to what Ahlul Bayt are saying, then this person can never become a scholar in this sense. Do people recognize them as a scholar? Yes. Do they present themselves to the world as a scholar? Yes. Imam is going to say this explicitly in this sermon. These are not our own conclusions. Usually, so usually this sermon, sermon 87, is presented as a sermon about the characteristics of those who have piety. So now we want to focus on it from another angle. We want to look at it as a sermon talking about who the true teacher is. Okay, so... As I said, I don't want to give a full commentary to this sermon. This would require another sermon. Inshallah, we'll leave it to another time. Or we could have a whole series on this sermon. Okay, so Imam Ali alayhi salam begins by saying, Ibadallah, inna min ahabbi ibadillahi ilayh abdan a'anahu allahu ala nafsih fastash'ara al-huzn wa tajalbaba al-khawf fazahara misbahu al-huda fi qalbih wa a'adda al-qira liyawmihi al-nazili bih so the Imam starts by saying, O creatures of God, the most beloved of Allah is He 
whom God has given power to act against his desires, against his passions, so that his inner side is submerged in grief and the outer side is covered with fear. So the Imam is describing the psychological state of these people. The lamp of guidance is burning in his heart. Okay, as I said, compare this description so that I don't repeat this. Continuously compare this description and see, is the imam describing normal people? Or is the imam really describing the infallible and other imams? And other people may have a part of this apply to them. But this will not fully apply unless he. this is being applied to the Ahlul Bayt. If it's not being applied to someone who is infallible, to a prophet, to an imam, that is constantly in this state. The lamp of guidance is burning in his heart. He has provided entertainment for the day that is to befall him. He regards what is distant to be near. People constantly say, death is far. The day of judgment is far. He says this kind of person, he considers it to be very close, very near. So he regards what is distant to be near himself and takes the hard to be light. The things that people want to consider to be very difficult, which is sacrificing in the way of God, and that applies to everything, your time, your energy, your money, this person considers it to be very easy. He looks at and perceives, he remembers God and enhances all of his actions. Then the Imam continues, نَظَرَ فَأَبْصَرْ وَذَكَرَ فَاسْتَكْثَرْ وَارْتَوَى مِنْ عَذْبِ فُرَاتٍ سُحِّلَتْ لَهُ مَوَارِدُهُ فَشَرَبَ نَهَلًا وَسَلَكَ سَبِيلًا جَدَدًا قَدْ خَلَعَ سَرَابِيلَ الشَّهَوَاتِ وَتَفَلَّى مِنَ الْهُمُومِ إِلَّا هَمَّنْ وَاحِدًا إِنْفَرَدَ بِهِ So he says he drinks sweet water to whose source his way has been made easy. So his access to knowledge is always to pure knowledge. This is the sweet water that he drinks. Okay? And this has been made easy for him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides this person to only have a source to things that are pure. So he drinks to satisfaction and takes the level path. However much knowledge he needs, pure knowledge he needs, he gets. He has put off the clothes of desire and got rid of worries except one worry peculiar to him. This person is only interested, worried, preoccupied by one thing. His relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala his position in the afterlife. That's his only preoccupation. He is safe from misguidance and the company of people who follow their passions. Right? فَخَرَجَ مِنْ صِفَةِ الْعَمَى وَمُشَارَكَةِ أَهْلِ الْهَوَى وَصَارَ مِنْ مَفَاتِيحِ أَبْوَابِ الْهُدَى وَمَغَالِيقِ أَبْوَابِ الْرَدَى See, the Imam he says, he has become the key to the doors of guidance. This person is a source of guidance. Himself or herself, they are a source of guidance. And they are a lock to the doors of misguidance. The Imam continues, قَدْ أَبْصَرَ طَرِيقَهُ وَسَلَكَ سَبِيلَهُ وَعَرَفَ مَنَارَهُ وَقَطَعَ غِمَارَهُ وَاسْتَمْسَكَ مِنَ الْعُرَابِ أَوْ ثَقِهَا وَمِنَ الْحِبَالِ بِأَمْتَنِهَا فَهُوَ مِنَ الْيَقِينِ عَلَى مِثْلِ ضَوْءِ الشَّمْسِ He has seen his way and is walking on it. This is someone who has certainty. This is not someone who has any doubts. There's no questions in the mind of this person. Who does this apply to? It applies to you and I easily. It applies to commoners. Okay, he knows 
his guidance and he has crossed over deep waters or dangerous waters. So things that are risky, things that are dangerous to others, they are not to him. He's not threatened by any of these things. He has caught hold of the most reliable support and the strongest of ropes. Okay, so this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is his teachings. He has caught hold. We said that. He is on that level of conviction, which is like the brightness of the sun. How sure are you when the sun is there and you're looking at it? How sure are you that the sun is there? You're very sure. You're certain. Are you going to doubt the light of the sun and the presence of the sun when you're directly looking at it? No. Imam Ali alayhi salam says he, as, he is as sure of himself and what he believes in as someone who is looking at the sun. Okay. فَهُوَ مِنَ الْيَقِينِ عَلَى مِثْلِ ضَوْءِ الشَّمْسِ قَدْ نَصَبَ نَفْسَهُ لِلَّهِ سُبْحَانَهِ فِي أَرْفَعِ الْأُمُورِ مِنْ إِصْدَارِ كُلِّ وَارِدٍ عَلَيْهِ وَتَصِيرِ كُلِّ فَرْعٍ إِلَىٰ أَصْلِهِ And then he continues, so I'll read this. مِصْبَاحُ ظُلُمَاتِ كَشَّافُ غَشَوَاتِ مِفْتَاحُ مُبْهِمَاتِ دَفَّاعُ مُعْضِلَاتِ قد أخلص لله فاستخلصه فهو من معادن دينه وأوتاد أرضه. There is a lot here. A few lectures can be said about this part, but very quickly. So the Imam here, he continues, he says, So this person who has this level of conviction and certainty, he has set himself for God, for performance of the most sublime acts of facing all that befalls him and taking every step needed. This is someone who says, I am now working so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is happy with what I do. Everything I do is going to fall under this general principle. He is the dispeller of all blindness. So now the imam is describing the roles that this person plays. It's not only that this person is guided himself or herself. A dispeller of blindness means the blindness of others. It's not only that this person sees. It's not only that this person is sure of where they stand. They are sure of their knowledge. They are sure of their beliefs. No. They are the one who dispel the blindness of others, the misguidance of others, the ignorance of others. Okay? He is the dispeller of all blindness. He is the key to the obscure. He is a remover of complexities. He is a guide in vast deserts. So, of course, this is a metaphor that works very well 14 centuries ago for desert dwellers. If you are lost in the desert, that's it. It means imminent death. The Imam says this person is a guide in the desert. The person who is lost, and all of them knew what that meant, he says this is a person who appears and they are a guide in the desert. Okay, You're completely lost and you know that this is it, this is the end, and someone appears and they know what they're talking about and how to get you out. When he speaks, he makes you understand. Whereas when he remains silent, then it is because it is safe to do so. He did everything only for God, and so God also made him his own. And this we spend a lot of time in the past talking about it. قَدْ أَخْلَصَ لِلَّهِ He has acted with sincerity towards God. So in return, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do? Says, فَاسْتَخْلَصَهِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala therefore chooses this person, purifies this person. Right? We talked about this when we talked about the levels of sincerity and what it leads to. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made him his own. Consequently, he is among the mines of faith and stakes in the earth. A stake is like a you know, nail. As we say, the mountains, for instance, are stakes. They keep the earth from moving. So there's no earthquakes around the areas where there are mountains. 
just like a nail keeps a carpet in place so that it doesn't slide. Okay, he says these people are like the stakes. They are like the things that stabilize everyone, that keeps the knowledge in place, that keeps the faith in place. This is the role that these people play, right? They are like a light in the darkness. They, they dispel, they guide those who are lost, and they are the ones who keep things stable. You're sure, you're certain. There's no sliding, there's no slipping with them around. Then the imam continues. So here, this is the second part. This khutbah is made up of five parts. This was the first part and it was the longest. This is the description of the muttaqin. We are now done. Did the imam really talk a lot about taqwa? No. And this is why I say, I have an issue with calling this khutbah khutbatil muttaqin. There's another khutbah where the imam talks more about things that have to do with taqwa. That one perhaps is more accurate to call khutbah around al-muttaqin. Okay. We want to understand really what the Imam was talking about. Now we're going to start seeing by opposition. Who does the Imam oppose this person to? We thought, because of how it's presented to us, we thought that this was the person who has piety. So the Imam should describe the person who has no piety, right? Simply. The Imam begins the next part by saying, And another... So by opposition, there is one who has called himself a scholar when he is not one. So who is the imam talking about? A teacher, a scholar. But that was the description of that scholar, the one that he gave us. He explained to us their spiritual states, their mental states, and the role that they perform in society. Right? That's what the imam talked about. But he didn't say this is the scholar, this is the teacher, but now that the imam is saying, and then there's another, by opposition to what we just said, and there is another who has called himself a alim, a scholar. And he is not one. Why? Is it because this person does not have knowledge? No, this person is full of knowledge. Knowledge in the sense of information. They have information. But remember the two conditions we gave to knowledge? This person does not meet them. So the Imam says, This person has extracted or gleaned or received ignorances from people who are ignorant and misguidances from people who are misguided. And then the Imam continues, وَنَصَبَ لِلنَّاسِ أَشْرَاكًا مِنْ حِبَالِ غُرُورِ وَقَوْلِ زُورِ قَدْ حَمَلَ الْكِتَابَ عَلَىٰ آرَائِهِ وَعَطَفَ الْحَقَّ عَلَىٰ أَهْوَائِهِ So he has set for the people traps of the ropes of deceit and untrue speech. Because of the way he presents things, these are traps for the people to fall into, but they don't realize, they don't know. He sets these up as traps. Okay, and untrue speech. He takes the Holy Quran according to his own view and right after his passions. Right? He makes people feel safe from big sins and, and takes light, serious crimes. Then he continues, So he he says to himself or he says to others. He is waiting for clarification or avoiding doubts, but he remains plunged in the doubts. 
Okay, he is right in the middle of doubts. He is right in the middle of uncertainty. But he's saying, I stay away from things I don't know. I stay away from things that are not clear. When he is plunged, Imam Ali says, he's immersed in those things. And what else? And that he keeps aloof from innovation, but actually he is immersed in it. He is the one who is making up all sorts of things based on his own opinions. But he says, I stay away from innovating or changing or creating something new in religion, in faith. Then the Imam continues by saying, فَالصُّورَةُ صُورَةُ insan, وَالْقَلْبُ قَلْبُ حَيْوَانٌ لَا يَعْرِفُ بَابَ الْهُدَى فَيَتَّبِعَهُ وَلَا بَابَ الْعَمَى فَيَصُدَّ عَنْهُ فَذَلِكَ مَيِّتُ الْأَحْيَاءُ So this person, فَالصُّورَةُ صُورَةُ insan. You look at this person, their external image is the image of a human being. But the heart is the heart of a, a beast or, or an animal. They are not at the level of humanity yet. Okay? Then the Imam says, He does not even recognize the, by, the, the door of guidance so that he may enter into guidance. And he does not recognize the, the door or the way or the path of misguidance or blindness, the Imam says, so that he avoids it or prevents others from entering into it. Those are the ones who are the dead living, the Imam says. Those who are biologically, they are alive, like everyone. But the Imam says, these people are really dead. And this has to do with the topic that we talked about earlier. We said that in our religion, you remember the link? When we talked about the rank, the importance, the merit of the learner. We said that the learner and the ahadith, we did not make this up. The learner is the only true living among the dead. The one seeking knowledge is the only one alive among the dead. The dead being those who don't seek knowledge. And so the imam here, he says, Is this person alive or dead? They're dead. Biologically, they're alive. Spiritually, in their heart, they're dead. They're not living a human life. They don't match the definition of being alive in the spiritual sense, in the divine sense. The third part of the khutbah, the Imam says, So these are references from the Holy Quran. The Holy Quran says this. So where do you go to? And where do you turn towards? You know, we're bringing the truth to you. Why do you turn away? Or if you're looking for something, we've brought it to you. Why do you look for it elsewhere? So the Imam uses these two expressions that are used in the Holy Quran. And then he explains it. He says, So the Imam says, the, the signs, the posts of guidance are standing. They're erected right in front of you. The indications are clear. The, the minara, the, the posts, the light posts are all fixed in front of you. Where are you being taken astray? How are you groping while you have among you the descendants of the Holy Prophet? You're acting as though you are people who are lost. You're desperate. You're looking for something. The Imam says, every sign you need has been put in front of you. Every instrument of guidance has been erected, placed right in front of you. 
Why do you keep turning away? Why do you keep looking for something as though it is not present in front of you? And in case it's not clear what the Imam is referring to, he says, So the Imam is referring to the family of the Holy Prophet. He says, you guys are acting as though you are lost, you are misguided, as people who would be lost in a desert, for instance, or in the middle of the ocean, for instance. Completely lost, you don't know where to turn. You're desperate. The Imam says, but all the signs are right there. Right in front of you, telling you what to do, where to go. And what are the signs? The signs are the family members of the Holy Prophet. So we'll finish the description. But this was the punchline from this khutbah based on our needs. We're looking for who is the true teacher? Who is the true scholar? Because we're going to be spending weeks talking about the teacher or the scholar in Islam. So we want to define this scholar very clearly right now so that every time we talk about the scholar, we understand who we're talking about. Who is the scholar and who is the teacher? The imam began by explaining how God-fearing and pious these people are. Then he explained by opposition this person who presents themselves to the world as a scholar when they are not. They are only full of misguidance and they only lead to uncertainty and more questions and so on and so forth. Therefore, they lack God-fearing. And then he's saying, why do you seem as though you are confused and lost and misguided when the truth has been put right in front of you? And what is the truth? The truth are the family members of the Holy Prophet. The infallible Imams, the Ahlul Bayt. They are the truth. So when we say scholar, because this person presented themselves to the world as a scholar when they are not one, therefore who is the scholar? The scholar are the members of the family of the Holy Prophet. What about everyone else? To the extent that they match what Ahlul Bayt are saying, to the extent that they tell you what Ahlul Bayt are saying, they are meeting the criteria of being a scholar. The person in themselves, there's nothing. They're just like another person. The person as a pointer towards Ahlul Bayt, great, they are a scholar. Does everyone who claims to be pointing towards Ahlul Bayt is of the same rank? No. The person who points a little bit, they are a little bit of a scholar. And the person who points very clearly, much clearer than anyone else, they are a much bigger scholar. That's a scholar. So the true definition of the scholar, every time we're going to encounter it, you think first, it's the ma'asum, it's the infallible. And then, as a secondary definition, it's everyone else who is performing the same role or bringing us back to what Ahlul Bayt are saying. So we'll finish this part. The Imam says, وَهُمْ أَزِمَّةُ الْحَقِّ وَأَعْلَامُ الدِّينِ وَأَلْسِنَةُ الصِّدْقِ فَأَنْزِلُوهُمْ بِأَحْسَنِ مَنَازِلِ الْقُرْآنِ وَرُدُّوهُمْ وَرِدُوهُمْ وَرُودَ الْهِيَمِ الْعِطَاشِ So he says, the, um, we'll start from, وَهُمْ أَزِمَّةُ الْحَقِّ So these people, they are the, the reins of what is right. You know when you hold an animal by the reins, so that you control the animal. He says, Ahlul Bayt are the reins of truth. This is what directs the truth, what allows you to understand the truth. 
Ahl al-Bayt They are the criteria. They are the signs of faith. They are the tongues of truth, the Imam says. So accord them or consider them in the same good positions as you accord the Qur'an. That's one way to understand this. When he says, فَأَنزِلُوهُمْ بِأَحْسَنِ مَنَازِلِ الْقُرْآنِ Consider them as you consider in the best rank. How do you consider the Holy Qur'an? In your best view of the Holy Qur'an, what is it? He says, so consider them in the same manner. So this would be Hadith al-Thaqalayn. Right? As you consider the Holy Qur'an, consider Ahl al-Bayt. That's one way to understand this. Another way to understand this some scholars have said it means put them in the ranks that the Holy Quran has put them in. That's another way to understand this. Either or, we're fine. Okay, and then he continues, and come to them as the third, the thirsty camels approach the water spring. Okay, so this is the, the 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 metaphors that the Imam uses, and again, they're appropriate for the people of that time. Many of us we haven't seen how a thirsty camel who has been in the desert for weeks, comes to drink the water. And how they drink, what amount and at what rate they drink. The imam says, come to them as the thirsty camels come to the water. To seek what? To get what from them? To get knowledge. Because they are the teachers. They are the sources of knowledge. So today, find a metaphor that works for you. The imam has been talking about, even from the beginning, those who have studied literature, you understand the, the strength of a metaphor that keeps coming back. He, start, he began talking about the person who is drinking the water that is sweet, right? That is pure. So he's coming back to the same metaphor. He reuses it in a different way. This water is constantly a reference to knowledge. How much of it you take, how pure of it you take, and so on and so forth. Okay, and then the imam says, Ayyuhannas, so here Imam Ali says, take your truth, don't take it from me, the Imam is telling them. Don't, don't take your truth from me just because Ali said so. Don't take it from me. Take your truth, take your wisdom from your Prophet. Don't take it from me. So he says, The seal of the Prophets. He says, learn or, or take from the seal of the Prophets when he said, the Holy Prophet, again, this is a link to the whole topic we had about knowledge equals true life. Okay, the Holy Prophet said, Imam Ali salam says, So the Holy Prophet said, the one who dies from among us is not dead. And the one who decays after dying has not decayed. Okay, the Holy Prophet is saying what? He's saying the family members of the Holy Prophet. In body, you may look like you have died. Someone who has perished. The body stopped working in this world. Have they really died as in they no longer exist in this world? No. Except that the body is not there. And that's what we believe. That's why when... You pray, every time when you pray, you talk. If the Holy Prophet is truly dead as a non-existent, you wouldn't say, As-salamu alayka ayyuhan nabi. You wouldn't salute the Holy Prophet in every single prayer. It's because you believe, as the Holy Prophet says in some of his narrations, he says, because I answer. Every time you say, As-salam, I answer the salam. 
And the one who does not believe that I answer the salam has performed an injustice against me, the Holy Prophet says. Believe that I answer your salam every time. Okay, so here the, the Holy Prophet says, Imam Ali tells them, the one who has died from among us has not dead. And the one who has decayed has not decayed. Do not say what you do not understand, the Imam says. Do not say what you do not understand because most of that which is right is in what you do not know. So this is again a reminder. He's const- contrasting. The Imam is telling them, you are normal human beings. What you ignore is much more than what you know. And there is much more truth in those things you don't know than in the things you know. So don't be arrogant. Turn towards the ones that the Holy Prophet says they are of a different character. They're of a different nature. Your Holy Prophet told you those people are different. They die and they're not dead. Can we say this about other people? Relatively, yes. But generally, no. This only applies in an absolute way to Ahl al-Bayt Right? So the Imam is saying, don't take it from me, take it from your Prophet. He has told you who to turn towards. Right? And then he says, do not say what you do not understand because of most of what is true or right is in what you ignore, except the argument of one against whom you have no argument. فَإِنَّ أَكْثَرَ الْحَقْ فِيمَا تُنْكِرُونَ وَأَعْذِرُوا مَنْ لَا حُجَّةَ لَكُمْ عَلَيْهِ Don't argue with someone against whom you have absolutely no argument. Okay? And then the Imam says, وَأَنَا هُو And I am that person against whom you have no argument. And then he goes into more practical considerations. He tells them, أَلَمْ أَعْمَلْ فِيكُمْ بِالثِّقْلِ الْأَكْبَرِ He's going to say seven statements. Each one of them can be a whole lecture when we study the biography of Imam Ali alayhi salam. He's now telling them, did I not act before you according to the greater thiql, the greater weighty thing, which is the Holy Quran? Did I not act among you based on the Quran? And take care of the smaller weighty thing. So the itra, the Ahl al-Bayt, when he is the husband of Fatima al-Zahra, when he is the father of Imam al-Hassan, Imam al-Hussain, he's referring to this. And I planted the banner of faith. And I have made you aware of what is halal, what is haram, the instructions of religion. And I have made you wear as though it's a garment, as though it's a piece of clothing that you wear. He tells them, I have made you wear, I clothed you with the garment of safety, with my justice. I treated you so well that you understand what true social justice is, right? So that you feel Fully safe. You feel healthy and safe. Let's put it that way. It's like as though it's a, a carpet that he rolls out of what? The good manners or the good things of my conduct and my sayings. I rolled it out to you like a carpet to walk on. Right? And have I not shown you the highest manners through myself? the manner in which I conducted myself among you. So do not use opinions about those things which cannot be understood or cannot be reached by the, the, the ends of which cannot be seen by the eye. Okay, so no matter how far your mind can go, you're never going to really appreciate 
the reality or the truth or the nature of certain things, don't try to come up with opinions about them. Right? And in a way, he's talking about what? The reality of truth or the reality of knowledge or the reality of imamah. These are things he's telling them that are beyond your true understanding, your full understanding. Don't come up with all sorts of opinions about them. We told you what the truth is. Rely on the truth that has been told to you. فَلَا تَسْتَعْمِلُوا الرَّأْيَ فِي مَا لَا يُدْرَكُوا قَعْرُهُ الْبَصَرُ وَلَا تَتَغَلْغَلُوا إِلَيْهِ الْفِكَرُ And those things that minds cannot creep into, cannot sneak into. The mind cannot reach the ends of these things. Cannot never truly appreciate what all of these things mean. I had two more passages, one of them much smaller and another one that is a little bit longer, so I'd rather not rush through them. So we'll leave them to the next lecture, inshallah. So what we tried to do here, and inshallah those two passages, much smaller than this one, but one of them we've actually talked a little bit about, a passage from Imam Ali salam talking about knowledge to Kumail ibn Ziyad. What does he say in that passage? And then a couple of ahadith, one or two ahadith from the Imams alayhim salam. All of this, to conclude what? To conclude that our first question, inshallah, this is what we will finish next time we meet, our discussion is around who is the true scholar? And why do we need this discussion? Because we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about the rank, the merit, the right, the responsibility of the scholar. So it should not get to our head because I read a couple of books, I attended a few lectures, I became a scholar, therefore everything that I'm going to say about the ranks of a scholar is now going to apply to me. The true scholar is the infallible. The true source of knowledge is the infallible. If anyone else has some of these ranks, some of these merits, some of this importance in our religion, it's only to the extent that they reflect, they align with, they point to the infallible. Why? Because these are people like you and I. The scholars are just people. They've worked hard, they've learned, they spend their whole life learning, absolutely commendable. But that's to them. How does this help me? What do I need from the scholar? I need truth. Where do I find the truth? If it's a, a person like you and I, then that truth is always relative. There is always a little percentage of doubt. They came up with the truth, I came up with the truth. It may align, great. It may not align, what do I do? This does not apply to the infallible. There is nothing relative. The infallible, there is no doubt. When he says, he's not just another person telling me their truth, telling me their opinion. They thought about it and came up with an explanation, an interpretation, a theory, a hypothesis, an opinion. No. This person, when they talk, if they are truly an infallible, they are a ma'asum, they are an imam, they are a prophet, they are a messenger. That's the people we're talking about. When this person talks, what he says is the truth because they're not talking from themselves. They don't say things that God does not want them to say because God has used them as guides to humanity. 
God does not want anyone to say, He said so, so I can do it, and that's wrong. In part, that's wrong. Even in part, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not allow that. And those people know. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has assigned someone as a guide to humanity, it means that everything they do has to match what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants. Everything they say has to match what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants. This does not apply as a criteria to anyone else. But this is the definition of the person who is a hujjah. That's why the same word that we say this is a person who is divine, a divine representative, is the same term we use to say this is the argument of God. This is the proof of God. This is what hujjah means. He is the proof of God. He is the argument of God. In other words, everything about this person equals the truth. Not a truth. There's nothing relative. It's the truth. The Holy Prophet could not have made this more explicit in the case of Imam Ali salam. You remember the saying of the Holy Prophet when he clearly appointed him as an Imam, a successor, a political and religious successor after him. What did he say? That he is, Ali is with the truth and the truth is with Ali. The first part, very easy. We could say it about a lot of people. I can say about a lot of people, they are with the truth. There is something called the truth and you conduct yourself, you act, you say things that match that truth. Therefore, you are with the truth. Easy. But the Holy Prophet said the second part of that equation. And the truth is with Ali. We're supposed to think that there is something outside in the world that is the truth. And everybody has to match to that truth. The Holy Prophet says that external truth that you have in mind it turns as Imam Ali turns. It moves as Imam Ali moves. How? Philosophically, if you want to think about it, does that make sense? The only way it makes sense is to say that they are one. There is no external reality and then Ali, there are different, one of them called truth and one of them called Ali. Right? It has to be one. And this is what the Holy Prophet is explicitly, publicly stating to the Islamic world at that time. This is Hajjat al-Wada. So when you understand this, then it becomes a lot easier for us to say, as seekers of the truth, this is the kind of truth. This is our standard of the truth. This is the kind of truth I'm looking for. Absolute truth. Do you have anything to match this, to compete with this? I'll take it from you. Don't accept anything less, unless there is nothing. Sometimes I may look for something, I have a question, and I look and I dig and I see, my religion has not really talked about this in depth. Is it okay to look for a truth elsewhere? Yeah, that's okay. But we believe, it should be part of our beliefs, that if this has a direct incidence, a direct effect on my soul, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala covered it in religion. So it means that there is something that is perhaps not having a direct impact on my soul. That's fine. 
I can look for a truth elsewhere. And that truth is probably going to be relative and changing. I can study math. I can study astrophysics. No issue. That is a form of truth, right? Right. Was it covered? If we dig, we might find things here and there in our religion about this too. But this was not the main purpose of the religion. The main purpose of the religion is the salvation of our souls. If something has a direct impact on the salvation of the soul, we believe we should find it first in our religion. So I begin by looking at what have Ahlul Bayt said about it. And then I can go look to see who else has come up with theories and ideas and interpretations on how to deal with something. This has to become a plan, kind of a second nature in life. Before I dig, before I think about it myself, before, start with Ahlul Bayt We're lucky, we have Ahlul Bayt Other people did not. We have the Holy Prophet and we have Ahlul Bayt. Other religions did not. So always begin with them as your main source of knowledge and then you can move to other teachers and other scholars and other theories and hypotheses and opinions. Okay, so inshallah we've established until now and there's a lot more coming but I didn't want to spend too much time. This is an introductory topic. I wanted to finish it off. So inshallah next time we meet we'll, we'll conclude this topic of who is the scholar? Who is this teacher we're talking about? So in short, the answer is it's the infallible. It's the ma'soom, it's the imam, it's the prophet and as for the others, to the extent that they represent what the ma'soom says, then they are a scholar. And the rest is no different than what everyone else thinks. Okay? This is the scholar that we're talking about in the next lectures. From this angle, from this way of understanding things. So inshallah, next time we meet, we continue with this. So, happy to take questions, concerns, comments, but let's start with this topic, what we covered today, in case there's anything about it, and then we can talk about anything else. So, any questions or any comments about Tfadl Ali? Uh, so, we said that the measure of whether or not somebody is considered a scholar is their conformity or how much they match with al but what about if we think about scholars in different fields? For example, if I say someone, if I say that this person is a scholar in, in math, for example, does he have the same criteria of he's a scholar if he shows uh, conformity or, or likeness to a debate? Or uh, what's there to say about this type of scholar? Yeah, so a very good question that we will address next time, inshallah, directly. Uh, but the question is, what about the other fields that are non-religious? Do we also try to see to what extent someone is matching, is aligning with Ahl al-Bayt or not? For instance, math. So in short, uh, fields that do not have anything to do with our spiritual salvation, we do not believe that our religion necessarily addressed them. Okay, And when it does address them, usually it's addressed in an optional manner. So it's up to you to take it or leave it, but you can leave it and there is no harm, significant harm done to your soul. We have a lot of a hadith, for instance, that will tell you how to eat and how to drink. 
and when to eat and, you know, whether you should stand or sit when you drink water late at night, for instance. But no one is going to tell you that if you don't do that, then that's haram and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to punish you with hell, right? So in some cases, our religion has addressed some of these non-religious topics. In some cases, it has not addressed them. In all of these cases, it is fine to take your knowledge from elsewhere. So long as, and inshallah this will become clear next time, that's why I wanted to leave it till next time, so long as it does not contradict something that Ahl al-Bayt have said. Why? Because now there's three levels. One level is you fully match, you match what Ahl al-Bayt are saying. So they say something, they say A and you say A. Great, there's a full match here. That's what we're looking for. That's what we've been talking about. There's a second scenario where Ahl al-Bayt haven't said anything about something. So is it fine to take from someone who is saying A about something? Yes, it's fine. The last scenario is Ahl al-Bayt say A and you say B. They say A and you say not A. That's a scenario that we have to avoid. This scenario should be avoided in all cases, religious and non-religious. Okay? The second scenario is optional. You go outside of what Ahl al-Bayt have talked about, you find someone saying something. Does it contradict something Ahl al-Bayt have said? If it doesn't, no issue. If it does, we have a very big issue. Unless, of course, they didn't say it. You can show that Ahl al-Bayt did not say something. That's a completely different topic. We're saying when you are, you have a good level of comfort in saying Ahl al-Bayt said this, that's it, the discussion is over. That should be the opinion and you can work with that, you can uh, develop it, you can elaborate it, you can expand on it, you can take it and apply it to different circumstances, but your source is what Ahl al-Bayt said. Great. The second scenario, Ahl al-Bayt did not talk about something. No issue. They didn't talk about it. It means our religion is not enforcing something in that topic. You're free to act as you want. Or three, Ahl al-Bayt have said something and then you find someone who has an opinion that is contradictory to what Ahl al-Bayt have said. That's the issue. That's the only one that we need to avoid. And that was going to be the conclusion we reach next time. Okay? And there's another topic we have to talk about related to this, but we'll leave it to next time, inshallah. Clear? Okay. Okay. It's a really good question. Relationship to Allah, 
Yeah, again, so excellent comment that, in short, to summarize the comment, in case it's not heard on video, that in a way, every field has something to do with our spiritual salvation or growth and development, uh, and that it's not so easy to say there are fields that are directly related and some that are not. Um, so that was, again, supposed to be the uh, final conclusion from last week, from next week, that we were going to say there is a short and sweet answer, and there is a deep answer to this. And that's exactly, for instance, the example that I used. For instance, when our religion says, you know, how to drink water late at night, or the example that you use from math. Math is a little bit more tricky because you have to dig and interpret the texts, right? But let's say you go into politics. And what does our religion say about political theory? How should it be, you know, managed in society? What does Islam say about economic theory, financial theory? What does Islam say about, I don't know, traffic? What does Islam say about planting trees in a city? Our religion has talked about these things. Okay, but it has not talked about them in a way that is prescriptive, that says this is haram and halal. It has talked about these things as, you know, if you wanted to, it might be better for you to do it this way. So someone who says, I want to take only the things from religion that are strictly religious, that have to do with the salvation of my soul and leave me alone for the rest, which is how a lot of people want to live, then this is your haram and halal. Make sure you perform your prayers, make sure you stay away from certain foods, certain drinks, very little things. These are your prescriptions. And the rest, completely free. How you want to dress, how you want to eat, how you want to sleep, all good. If you want to, we can also give you advice on those things. And there's two layers to this, two dimensions to this. We think, religion says, we think this is good for your soul. One, this is good for your soul because it's actually good for you that you follow what we're teaching you, but you don't have to. You're free. One. And two, you're going to get reward and punishment for this too. But the punishment may not be in the afterlife. You're just making your life harder here. And you can turn all of this into higher levels of purity, higher levels of spirituality because you believe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you instructions about everything in life and you want to know to follow. Not because you think it's good or bad. Because you know this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had in mind for you in this world. You want to know it, so you follow it. You make Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala happy. You want to know everything about the Holy Prophet so that you do it exactly like he wanted you to do it, out of love. Well, you get thawab for this. You get rewards for this. Okay, so in short, the short answer is our religion has things that are prescriptions. These are your halal and your haram. And we believe that the things that religion puts in this category, they have a lot more to do with the salvation of your soul, which is the point of religion. And of course, this is not the time to go into the, the philosophy of religion, but we believe religion to be individual and social. So when we say the salvation of your soul, it also has to be in a way that does not harm other people and their souls. And that's why there is a collective or social dimension. It's not just freedom entirely that you want to do or don't do. It stays at your level internally. 
It has to include things that may harm or not harm the souls of other people so that they are in the best state they can be. You're not allowed to encroach on their rights. So religion is going to include prescriptions, things that are enforced, things that we consider to be halal, haram. And those things are directly relevant to your soul or conditions for your soul to be in the best state it can be. Everything else our religion has said, it's up to you. You're free to do and free not to do. Someone who has a much deeper understanding of knowledge, as you explained, of, of our religion, is going to say even those dimensions, because religion wanted to be easier for the people, easier to apply, easier to implement, it did not make everything into prescriptions that everyone has to follow. It said, I'm just going to, those things that are really absolutely necessary for your soul, I'm going to talk about and make them into laws, prescriptions you have to apply in all cases. As for the rest, you're free. You want to harm yourself a little or a lot, but in a way that does not really affect you very deeply or others very deeply, go ahead, do so. That's, you're free to do so. But we believe that our religion, being what it is, holistic as it is, has covered everything. Most things it has covered with general principles. A lot of things it has covered explicitly, in detail. So this is a deeper answer. We do believe that everything that our religion has spoken about includes everything. Every dimension of life, every aspect of our human experience is covered one way or another by our religion. Do you have to follow it? No, you're, you're free. The part that you have to follow is the part that is prescribed. Okay, so now two topics from next week are covered. We still have the hadith to go through, but these are the conclusions, the punchlines are, are now being revealed. Does anyone want to take the two last points and <laughs> cover them? <laughs> status of scholars um, in the Islamic sense. So, for example, a topic which um, Islam or the narrations from our Emma has not covered directly, can we still regard somebody who's knowledgeable in that field as a scholar um, based on the definition that we came up with today? Yeah, so in short, does our religion, what does our religion say in regarding someone who is carrying non-religious knowledge that has not been addressed by our religion. Example, math, for instance. So someone is a big mathematician. So should we regard them in high esteem, for instance, for their math knowledge? 100% yes. So this is part of the general understanding and merit and respect and rank that our religion gives to knowledge and those who carry it. That in that field, in that area, as a mathematician, I respect this person for his math. This person for economics and that person for their contributions to humanity. No issue at all with that. We might have an issue because there's other areas of this person that are not going to match what our religion's saying. Those areas I can't respect them in. Right? So, yeah. Inshallah, that's clear. It's Fadlu. So you said uh, that defining the scholar, you said the scholar is the one that uh, the scholar is the one that his knowledge or the source of his knowledge is pure, is, is 
uh, and things about it, like all the terminology about the purity of the knowledge that they get. By that definition, wouldn't a lot of scholars that we would call scholars in fields that we're interested in, in religion as natural or not, would be, well, driven out of this, this definition? Um, he said, the true scholars are imams, and uh, probably this hadith might have been about Malali, uh, we'll be talking about imam and, the, and um, uh, the conditions of leadership in, in the community. But uh, do you think that that definition would drive out um, our contemporary understanding of scholars? Yeah, so in short, what about scholars who are perhaps talking about religious fields now? The, the example that you use, these are religious fields, fields that we believe have a direct impact on our spiritual salvation, let's say, uh, and uh, those uh, opinions, the information, the theories, the content that they present uh, is their own and is not matching, is different, is contradictory to what Ahlul Bayt are presenting? Is, is that the scenario? There is a condition of that that Yes, there is a uh, For example, uh, Mosadros, how much of his opinions is it? Is, is, is like uh, Plato's, how much of it is Mosadros? Yeah. Or, or the, other, the other condition is, the other situation is that uh, the scholars don't know that they don't know. Let's say uh, they're reading the hadith. Yeah. The hadith might not be, uh, the hadith Mosadros is something that is created during the 10th century, for example, by the Abuids. Uh, so, uh, so, to a large degree, what we uh, have as, as a contemporary sources, they do take it sometimes turn I think with ahtiyat and whatnot. So, uh, wouldn't that impurify the sources that we have today? I'm in tarikh, history, or akhlaq, and Yeah, so, excellent question. It's a, it should be a discussion, not a question. Uh, so, in short, um, because I think it's a it's a big topic. In short, um, everything that we are talking about, we are focused here on uh, ourselves and what we're doing. And so this is part of our journey to knowledge seeking for ourselves. And what we're describing is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or how our religion views things. And that can only apply with certainty to ourselves. Right? I can never know what's in the heart of someone else. Okay, I can never know what they're thinking, what they're feeling, why they did it, what their intentions are. All I know is mine. So this only really fully applies to myself. That's one. Everything else, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will assess. And so to start with, there's kind of two layers here. One layer is what we're saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees, but we don't see. Right? I will never know what the rank of, let's say, let's take the example you gave of a mullah sadra is. I'll never know that, okay? What I can tell is from based on what I know, what from my perspective, I can assess the external content, knowledge that he presented, efforts that he put in. How Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala views all of that is completely a different uh, uh, dimension that I don't have access to. We'll know yawm al-qiyam, as they say. Okay, so that's first point. The second point, the true knowledge or the true scholarship rank of a scholar, well, one dimension of it is going to have to do with this directly, right? To what extent is Mullah Sadra a true scholar? Well, I will never know the answer based on in God's knowledge. I will never know, right? 
I can only know based on my knowledge. And this is where people are going to differ. This is where you and I may study Mullah Sadra, and I study Mullah Sadra, and I say, this is the greatest, highest level of scholarship I have ever seen in Islam, as some have said. And so they say, as he himself said, Mullah Sadra says, this is going to be the best synthesis between the Holy Quran and the sayings of Ahlul Bayt and reason, human reason. I will explain in philosophical terms what Ahlul Bayt and the Holy Quran have said. That's he, he presents his entire philosophical system this way. If he is correct, then it might be true that no one has been able to do what he did. Okay, But this is also where, because we're only dealing with the external reality, you and I can differ on this. And you might agree, and I might disagree, or the opposite. You might say, actually, these seven points they're saying, they're not from the Qur'an, they're from Plato, right? Or Plotin, for instance, as has been proved. Or from Indian philosophies. Or from Ibn Arabi, who took it from other Indian religions, for instance. So we have a huge debate here. To what extent is this interpretation of the verses of the Qur'an actually matching what Ahl al-Bayt wanted from these verses? So this is where you see the difference, and this is the nature of scholarship. What really matters is at the spiritual level, and as a scholar, I will, I'll speak for myself, based on what our religion says, I have to respect his efforts. I cannot, unless I have proof that he is trying to do this for the wrong reasons, that he is doing this out of disbelief, he is doing this to lead people astray, that he is, I have to take this at face value. What he is trying to do is to advance religious knowledge. Okay, so I have to respect that, I have to respect the effort, I may consider him to be, you know, a saint in terms of someone who stays away from haram, someone who is, there's no issue with all of that, right? I will kiss his hand when I see him, and I will tell him 98% of what he has written is wrong, in the same breath as kissing his hand. Do you understand that? Okay, so there is a spiritual dimension to this, and then there is the factual content of what he's presenting. And this is going to be a matter of debate between everybody. And that's why the, the door of science is open, right? That people may disagree. So I would definitely say, based of, on God's knowledge that we do not know, this person may not be a scholar at all. But I don't think that we can say in the same breath that this person has also planted himself as a scholar when he is not. That's the part that, based on external reality, this is someone who has the tools, has the equipment, has, you know, spent their life studying the, the ahadith and the Qur'an and, and, and this is their conclusions are leading them there. So you have a, an issue, a disagreement, fight them in their turf, right? On their turf, science with science, argument with argument, proof with proof. Yeah, tfadlu. عفواً مش فون إذا فرمي yes طل. So really, about classifying whether it's a mathematician or anybody else, um, like there's a spectrum, and then at the end of the spectrum is Ahlul Bayt. They are who you would give your full authority to to teach you. Um, so, so outside on that spectrum, anybody else that the closer they align to that is the more authority you give them for to teach you. And then if they're just teaching math, teacher, you give them authority for that math. 
if he's teaching you math, that gets you closer to Tawheed, and he's teaching us with Ahlul Bayt, then that's even more that you're uh, giving authority more towards them, because they're getting closer and closer to the teachings of the truth that Ahlul Bayt 100% correct. You're absolutely right. Yeah, Ahsan too. Yeah, the, the, weight, the weight of a, a scholar, for instance, in physics, that is a believer and one that, that, that is not, and the believer actually um, can probably explain you that uh, physics or chemistry or any other science, which does not necessarily have a spiritual dimension, but that can probably spark some uh, spiritual reflections um, or religious uh, reflections is in, in what we're saying probably uh, a, a more accredited scholar or a more uh, a, a closer scholar to what we're trying to uh, the way we have defined it yeah um, it may or may not be the case I think we're mixing the two here so, so let's say someone who is a, a believer a, a physicist who is a believer in God and they are also a uh, an astrophysicist, for instance, um, and they present their theories, and someone else who is presenting themselves to the world, let's say as an atheist, and uh, their theories are astrophysical theories as well. There's other factors at play here. If they are more eloquent and they can present a stronger, better, more coherent theory, then that theory is going to be better in that space in that field that's one and two um, as a believer who looks at the theory of the non-believer of the atheist i may get sparked spiritually much more even though he is an atheist and he doesn't see it when i study his work i reach a higher level of spirituality or connection or understanding of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than the work of the believer who has not been able to convince me or to present a, a stronger or more coherent theory, right? And so I think we're mixing between the rank of this person as a person spiritually, which we'll never know, that's between them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and the effect it has on me, well, there's a lot of factors too. It's more the scholarship itself, scholarship is scholarship, it has its own criteria, right? If they're writing, writing is part of the equation. There are people who have an amazing mind. They're geniuses, but they're not able to express their ideas properly. They can't write them properly. They can't uh, communicate them properly. That's the whole field. Someone with less knowledge, with less capacity, but who has a, a stronger, better, more talented uh, communication, communicative ability is going to go further in that field, for instance. right? So there's all these other uh, criteria that are going to be at play here. Okay, so I think it's late enough. The rest we can discuss uh, individually.